Tommy Lorenzo. And this is the Pop Style Opinion Fest. Hello, kittens. Welcome back to another edition of the PSO. I am the T in your Tilo, Tom Fitzgerald. And I'm here with the low in your Tilo, Lorenzo Marquez, my lovely husband, who's giving me a big smile right now. <laughs> Hello. I think you're feeling the love. Oh, I always do. Okay. Uh, how are you? I'm fine. Happy, um, happy that it's Friday. Yeah. Happy it's Friday. We had a moving. rough content week. Yeah. Ooh, dog, we had a rough I know, content I week. I know. Sometimes it's so hard. And um, yeah, because it waxes and wanes, and you never know when they're all right. Gonna, all the celebrities are going to crawl back into their little hidey holes and, and not come out for a little while. It's there is a normal s- slowdown just leading up to the Oscars, but it's not normally this long. Uh, usually there's luncheons, and there's right. a lot of like, you know what I really miss? <laughs> Build series. You could always rely on build series in New York because they would get all dressed up, pass through on the sidewalk, and there were like four of them right, a week. You right. know, you could always, and it's that sort of thing. They would all be heading into Good Morning America this week, and right, they would be traveling and 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 where. But we're not so, getting any of yeah, that. You're not getting any of that. Yeah. Which brings us to our first short little bit of of uh, information for this podcast. It's just a follow up on last week's. If you heard us. Uh, and you should. You should be listening to every week, uh, listening to everything we say. But um, clearly, everyone in Hollywood listens to everything yeah, we course. say. Because we we spent uh-huh. last week criticizing the plans for the Oscar ceremony and how they were telling the nominees that they had to show up in Los Angeles for the ceremony. They could not Zoom in. And the reasons for this were many and varied. And they actually make sense because... All the industry award shows in the past year have been Zoom award shows and their ratings have been dismal right. because nobody wants to watch that. On the other hand, you cannot tell people who are nominated for the biggest industry award of their career that uh, either you risk your health by showing up or you don't get to accept it if you win. There was a lot of backlash to that. And that was our main criticism last right. week in, in last week's podcast was that it was both... Um, Sort of irresponsible from a health, not right. not that anybody should be looking to the Oscars for health advice or health advocacy, but it was still not a great uh, approach, especially since Los Angeles is one of the hardest hit. Uh, you know, their cases are constantly spiking. They have not got it locked right. down and, yet. And I, I, I said that last time, uh, you know. You know the celebrities, the actors are not just coming by themselves. I mean, they 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 have an entourage. They have like well, they have like ten people with them, hairstylists, makeup people, no, or, I whatever. Mean, I mean, they have all these people coming with them. Yes. No, I mean that's an easy thing to tell people to limit to what they can. I mean, they don't have to have that many people. Well, um, I I don't. I don't see how that's an issue. They uh, Anybody can travel without 10 people. But anyway, to get to my point, and then I'll throw to you, come, come. Uh, I just want to get to my main point, which is that um, there was a meeting this week. Stephen Soderbergh, uh-huh. the producer of the ceremonies, and, and, and a bunch of people had a meeting with uh, various you know, members of the Academy who were protesting this approach. And they are now setting up remote locations in places like London and Paris so that the, especially the European, I'm assuming they're going to set one up in New York as well. I yeah, mean, I they, they would I be smart know, to yeah. because there's like right. hubs where all of these people tend to live. 
And um, yeah, that was basically what we said they should do last week. So yay us, because once again, we are influencing with our tiny little podcast, <laughs> yeah, sure. all the movers and shakers in Hollywood. It just okay. didn't make sense when they said, well, if you don't come, that's it. Forget it. Uh, forget your word. Uh, it makes no sense. Uh, Did my, you want to return to that point about entourages? Well, I mean, my point is that he, the reason why they're forcing people to come is because they want to have them on the show, you know, right. not not just this blurred image on, on, on a screen, right. which means that People are going to dress up. They they need to look good and stuff, and they need their people. You know, just otherwise you you end up like RuPaul. Remember <laughs> the little there have been the a, RuPaul with a mask. You know, yeah. But there have been a lot of instances of of celebrities doing their own styling. Like Tracy Ellis Ross joked about her stylist throwing the outfit over her back fence, right? But for you her still, to put on. But you still come with your publicist. Your you know you don't come alone. No, you don't. I anyway. I'm not with you on this one. But right. fine, whatever. I mean, I'm not here for the entourages. I don't care. <laughs> um, hair and makeup, yes, but everything else, no. Uh, but we just wanted to return to that and just say, you know, our our um our objections to the whole thing were not uh, coming out of left field. A lot of people right, were making exactly. the same that, objections. That's the whole point here, yeah. And um, it looks like they're going to come correct. It'll, I mean, it remains to be seen. I, I, It's going to be the weirdest Oscars. It's going to be depressing. And I know a lot of people aren't going to watch it, but I am hoping for a night of glamour. But we'll see. Anyway, um, we're both going to talk a little bit about TV shows that we're watching or have... Com- Did you complete yours? Oh, which one? The one you're about to talk yeah, about. Yeah, 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 I did. Oh, oh so you have ago. a full... Yeah, it's dropping today on Netflix. Yes. I'm shutting up. Lorenzo, go. It's uh, on Netflix today. It's called The Serpent. I, I mentioned a little about it, uh, and I also tweeted about it. And it's funny because I tweeted saying, that, you know, the show made me very angry for weeks after I watched the screeners. Um, the thing, it, it's 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 a great show. It's 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 called The Serpent, as I said, drops today, and uh, um, starring um, the amazing Tahar Rahim. Uh, he's also in um, the Mauritanian. Mauritanian. Yeah, he's really good, and he's really good in this um, series. Um, uh, also starring as his girlfriend is uh, Jenna Coleman. She's also very good. So the story is is based on a real uh, story. It's about these two people, the, um, this couple. They go around. Um, Thailand, India, in the seventies, and and they commit a lot of crimes. Uh, they kill a lot of people, um, and uh, but it and it's based on a true story, and that's why I said that I was so angry about it, because it's a very I was that type of story, especially if it's based. I mean, when it's based on a, a true story, it just infuriates me. I mean, I just hate these stories because it just makes me sad that people get killed like that. They just go on a vacation and they just get killed by some asshole like him anyway but it's a great show um it's it's really well told the story uh it's an eight-part uh series um and um, the costumes are incredible uh they were designed by rachel walsh uh they're beautiful they really capture the 70s and and the places you know the the whole hippie uh, trail uh that you know most people used to travel there looking for all kinds of things you know um drugs and you know spirituality everything <laughs> so anyway it, it it's it they do a good job so i i highly recommend the show um it's annoying it's a horrible story but it's it's really well told and and it's a story that i didn't know much about i knew a little bit about it um but it's they did a good job so if you into that type of show i highly recommend it visually beautiful the both actors are incredible you know it's just a sad story but it's in a dark sense it's 
it's in a dark sense. I put I myself. I mean, when I watch um, shows, I don't like shows when people get killed. <laughs> I just don't. It just upsets me a lot. But that's just my personal uh, preference. Right. Um, sometimes I force myself to watch them because I I want to watch the show, and I want to know more about the the story. But they usually upset me a lot, and I'm like upset for days because I I just yeah, uh, that type of thing upset me. That type of you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, I didn't realize it bothered you that much. It we, does. We it learn does. things. Yes, all the every time. Day. It's, every day is an adventure. Anyway, um, um, yeah. So that's the serpent. You recommend it, but if you're the type of person who gets upset over death and violence, maybe not. Yeah, I mean, it's not that it's graphic, but it's just the the story itself. It's just really they it go clearly around. affected you. Yeah. Anyway, but um, it's a great show. Good. Uh, that's the serpent on Netflix. Don't give me that look. <laughs> uh, I am now going to talk about um, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier briefly because I just uh, I, I haven't really weighed in on it up until now, except again briefly. Um, and I guess it's because I'm not loving it. It's you know it's right up my alley. I tend to watch a lot of these superhero MCU things, and I'm fairly well versed in all of them. Absolutely adored Wandavision. Um, even though I think it had some flaws near the end, but, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, this to me is, is, we're, we're in the second of these Marvel, um, Disney plus series. And I already feel like it's starting to get a little formulaic or in the sense that, um, even though this series is absolutely nothing like WandaVision, in tone, it is doing the same thing where it's taking minor or side characters from the Avengers films and and trying to develop entire stories around them. Uh, and that actually worked really well with Wanda and Vision because they were so unexplored, but there was clearly a relationship there before he died in the movies. So there was stuff there that they could pick up and piece together, and they, they did it in a very creative way by by presenting it in a genre that you would never have expected a Marvel property to, you know, they did classic sitcoms in the first several episodes. The problem with the Falcon and the Winter Soldier is it is a Captain America movie in every single way, uh, in, in tone and in style and in subject matter. Um, and look, it just looks like a Captain America movie. It sounds like a Captain America movie, but, but Chris Evans isn't in it. And I realize that's the point to the story. It is about people trying to fill that gap. But now that Steve Rogers is is gone, but um, I don't know. It's I think a better way to have done that. I think I wish they would have taken an approach somewhat similar to, to Wandavision in that they had presented this story in a way that didn't look like a Captain America list Captain America film. Again, Mm -hmm. I suspect that is largely the point because the whole theme is his absence. You're supposed to feel it. But um, I, you know, we're three episodes into it now and these episodes aren't, aren't as short as the WandaVision ones. They tend to be about 40 minutes long. So, you know, we're well into what would be a movie at this point. I and think it, that's the difference. It's very repetitive and not particularly exciting. I think that's why I liked WandaVision so much, because it was kind of a different story. Right. Uh, it wasn't, it didn't look like a, a Captain America, like right. you said, movie. That's, it didn't look like a superhero movie. Yeah. And I, again, like I said, I understand that this is probably by design, because his absence is the entire driving point of the story. It's a bunch of people trying to fill that absence or 
declaring themselves unfit to fill that absence. And they are doing some interesting things by, um, although granted, they're bringing these things up and then they're not really going anywhere with them so far, but they are bringing up several issues of race uh, that, you know, uh, American racism, Americans' history of racism um, in a manner that you never saw before in a Marvel film. So, but they keep picking it up and then not going anywhere with it. Um, I'm hoping that'll happen at some point down the line. But this latest episode, the one that dropped today, I won't spoil too much if you haven't seen it yet. But, you know, it was just some a string of relatively mindless action scenes, and they brought in two side characters. It's in some way, This is what I mean about it sounding, feeling a little formulaic now, is because... Um, I could feel as I was watching the episode, I was like, oh, some figure from the films is about to show up. Some figure that we haven't seen in a while, but we'll recognize from Captain America. And that happened, you know, early on in the latest episode. And then again, late in the episode, like at the very end of it, um, again, you get this sense, oh, someone from the X side, I'm not going to say which side of the MCU is about to show up and boom, there this person is at the end. Side character, didn't get a lot of lines, but you recognize them. Much in the same way you had people like Kat Dennings and Randall Park in WandaVision, although they did a great job with integrating those characters. With Falcon and the Winter Soldier, it really, it we're on the second MCU Disney Plus series, and it already feels like they're just checking things off a list. It's like, all right, let's check in on the state of the world post-blip. Let's check in on the depressed Avengers who are mourning X, Y, and Z. And then let's throw in a lot of side characters from to remind you of, uh, well, I'll be blunt, to remind you of movies that were a lot more fun than this series. <laughs> um, I don't hate it. But I'm already like, if this is what they're doing with these Disney Plus series, they're just going to sort of fill in the blanks between now and the next big movie. I don't know. I, I I think Sebastian Stan is very charming. I think Anthony Mackie is great as Sam. I think they have tremendous chemistry together. I think I would have liked this much more if it had been some sort of buddy heist movie. Very different from Captain. But instead, it's just this militaristic international terrorism, you know, spies in the government. It's exactly the same stuff that we saw Chris Evans fight in three movies. So I'm, I'm just not feeling it. I'm just... It just uh, feels like a stopover to the next... I to guess. the next movie. And I yeah. was, you know, the great thing about WandaVision was that it was its own thing. It felt like a fully... Exactly, yes. <clears throat> pardon me. A fully created world that was different from what we expected. It told a complete story. Yes, it left you hanging at the end, and they're going to pick up all those threads in later movies. But the actual experience of watching WandaVision was a closed experience. You right. could come to it and watch the whole thing. I think um, that's what I, I like so much about it because it, it, it stands on its own. I mean, it doesn't need, you know, a lot no. to enjoy it. Much like our Bombas socks. I don't <laughs> need a lot to enjoy my Bombas socks. You don't even need to convince me to enjoy my yes. Bombas socks. If you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you have heard us both talk about how much we love our yeah, Bombas socks. I fold them all the time. Yes, because <laughs> I wear them literally every day. I wear them as my comfy day, sh you know, socks and to putter around the house, keep my feet warm. And then I put on my workout socks and then I go back <laughs> and put on my comfy socks again. Uh, although they're all comfy. The great thing about Bomba socks is that they are, they feel molded to your feet. They have that wonderful band that wraps around mm -hmm. your arch that 
it gives it support. Um, and uh, it does. It has no seam across the toe, which I, oh my God. They're amazing. They're toe amazing. seams really yeah. annoy me. They're the kind of socks that they snap right into place yes, on your yes, foot because yes. they're shaped to your foot. But that's all like the technical stuff. Um, go to the Bombas.com because you will fall in love looking at these designs. They are the cutest, most colorful socks in all different styles, all different shapes, all different lengths. And I haven't even started reading the copy that I'm supposed to be reading. Bombas makes the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. They've literally rethought every little detail of the socks we wear to make them way more comfortable. But these socks do more than keep feet cozy. They help give back to the most vulnerable members of our community. Because for every pair of socks you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. The generosity of Bombas customers has allowed them to donate over 34 million pairs of socks and counting through their nationwide network of 3,000-plus giving partners. And the impact is more powerful than ever. To those experiencing homelessness, these socks represent the dignity of putting on clean clothes, a small comfort that's especially important right now. So... Give a pair when you buy a pair and get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash T-L-O. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash T-L-O for 20% off your first purchase. Bombas.com slash T-L-O. Seriously, go check them out. The they are amazing. So the designs cute. are so wonderful. So cute. All right. Thank you, Bombas. Now. Lorenzo wants to talk about French Exit, the Michelle Pfeiffer movie that came out, is out now, right? It yes, came out this yes, week. Yes. It um, has been in limbo for over a year because of all like the everything week, else. Like everything else. But uh, it came out. We both watched it this week. I think we have slightly different takes. It's funny because you thought I was going to hate it and I didn't. Um, but I'm going to let you lay out, lay it out. Well, French Exit, it, it stars um, Michelle Pfeiffer and Lucas um, Hedges. Um, that's his name, right? I think yeah, I yeah. remember correctly. Yes. yes, it's based on a on a on a book, uh, on a novel of the same name, um, and it's very, it, it's interesting because once you read about the book uh, and about the movie, you understand why things were done the way they were done. Um, I didn't read the book, uh, and it's funny because I tweeted about it, and someone on Twitter uh, replied back and said, "Does does it get weird like like in the book?" And it's funny because I was like, oh, that explains a lot. Um, I worship Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, I think she's amazing. I mean, she's such a wonderful actor. And I love every movie she's made. Um, love her in every movie she's made. Um, and it's truly about her. I mean, it's, it's such a specific character that they did an incredible job casting her because she embody that character like nobody else and i think because of her performance you that you went you you know you intrigued even if you didn't like the movie you want to know where that character is going to go i um i agree with you on all of that um i think her performance is the really the only reason to see the movie um because it anchors right, the whole yeah. film it's the point of the whole film and it really is just a perfect flawless performance from an actress who is um, especially suited to that kind of... As I said to Lorenzo, I was like, I, I couldn't see Meryl doing this. Not in the same way, you know? It, it The point to that character, at least as I understood her on screen, because she's difficult and unpleasant, and there's some mental health issues at the very right. least. Right. Um, but she is a woman who has lived in the lap of luxury her entire life, 
and who is nearing the, you know, the twilight or the end of her life. Um, and she's still stunningly beautiful. That's why I'm like, that That role is so perfect for Michelle Pfeiffer, because one thing she's good at as an actress is conveying, and it's not easy because it's, you know, people are naturally going to recoil from this idea, but she is very good at characters that um, that wear their beauty like a weight. Yes. You know what I mean? Like dangerous yeah. liaisons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Like she has played, so, uh, even like when she played Catwoman, it's the fact that she looks like Michelle Pfeiffer <laughs> yeah. in these roles yeah. is largely the point of the character. And I do not mean that she's resting on her looks or anything. No. No, she's doing what good actors do is that she uses her looks in a manner that makes sense. She's using and when everything. you look like yeah. her, like there really aren't a lot of roles in Michelle Pfeiffer's career where she, you know, I don't know, wore a fake nose or tried to make herself look like a farmer's wife or whatever, you know, when actresses do that. She has, because I think she understands no one's going to buy me in these roles. Like, look, this face is distracting. Uh, Not that she would ever say that because I don't think she's in her, when you read interviews with her, I don't think she's always particularly comfortable with her beauty. Um, But she does wield it very, very well. I think, you know, certain actors are like that. Brad Pitt wields his beauty very well. It took him years to understand how to do it. But by Mm. the time he reached middle age, like when you look at uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there is a man who's like, I know how I look. (laughs) And I'm just going to play this character because he knows how he looks. Um, and I appreciate that when, because sometimes it's really annoying when a, a film or a television show is populated by people who are just uncommonly beautiful and nobody notices it or acts upon it. You know what I mean? Um, so that's part of why I loved her in this role was because, um, it's never stated that the character is beautiful, but the way that everybody fawns over her and talks about her reputation and how they watched her from afar, it's clear that that's part right, of the right, point right. of that character. It's not just that she was rich and had a um, scandalous life. Right, right. It's that she was beautiful and rich and had a scandalous life. Right. And again, it's an unstated part of her performance, but you feel that she is largely at the end of her rope because she, it's, it's one of the few things she has left are her looks. Again, this is not stated, but I, that's why I think the role works, is that you feel that this is a woman who feels like it's over, not only because she ran out of money, but because she's not going to remain, she's not going to look like this for much longer, right, and right. she knows it. it. It's interesting because when I read about the, <clears throat> when I read the story um, um, that, you know, she's from New York, and then she moves to Paris, and I was like, oh, here we go again with the Paris you know, yeah, Amer- but it's not Ameri- about right America moving to Paris kind of thing. But it, it's not like that at all. No, I mean, it's not you, about baguettes or no. If you <laughs> if you understand where she came from, uh, it makes sense that she ended up in Paris. Yes, uh, yes, uh, it makes perfect sense. Um, there's also a adorable cat, and that's all I'll mention. Well, yes, and I I I want to talk about the rest of the film. Yeah, uh, me too. Me without too. going into spoilers, but like. There is a very good cast of actors, including Lucas Hedges, but I hated all the characters. And I don't mean that they weren't likable people, because I don't care whether... I can love a character who is a complete and total asshole. I can love a character who's a murderer, you know, as long as they're a character. But um, 
I just mean they just weren't interesting on screen. I didn't want to watch them. I didn't care what happened to them. They were peripheral. Everything in the story and in the film is peripheral to Michelle Pfeiffer. That, and again, in this, that is largely the point. But it just means that she has to carry the whole film, and there just isn't enough story there for a film. Right. Well, that that's usually the uh, problem with the, with the movie based on a book. And depending right. on the book, you know, it's a very specific environment. Um, you can't really expand. Uh, and I think that's the case. It does feel like a play towards the end. Um, like I didn't get that. I can see it because it's centered in a certain space right, in Paris. That's what I mean. uh, and yeah. people move in and out of that space. Um, I thought the dialogues were great. Uh, the lines were, some of the lines were hysterical. Um, I, I agree. And make and they make you, most of them make you think. And, and, and I do think that the whole story is very interesting. What I love about it is that it's not one of the stories like, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not giving anything away. But, it, you know, it's like, okay, I lost all my money. And then here's what I'm going to do. And, and you know, usually... And I'm going to reinvent myself. I know. Right. I know. Exactly. Usually these movies have a lesson and you learn. And <laughs> She looked at her life, said, I lost all my money. There's no point Fuck living it. anymore. Yeah, exactly. And that is the movie. Exactly. That is the story. Exactly. I'm not... I'm not saying no, that that's, that's the literally. way you should do it but it it it's it's a reality for some people and right. and it's interesting to see that in a film it's a reality for a character like that yeah. and they never I, I think the one grace the one thing really perfect thing about the movie is that they never lose sight of who that character yeah. the director never loses sight of it and michelle pfeiffer never loses sight of it um they allow her some growth and they allow her some resolution of certain things, but only in, in very minor, minor ways. Um, she stays true to the end. It ends the way you think it's going to end. Um, and that's all fine. I, when I Lorenzo thought I was going to hate it. And I went and watched it because he saw it before I did. And then I, wa- I watched the screener and I came back to his office and I said, I, I'm surprised I didn't hate it at all. I don't know why you thought I would hate it. It is a goofy, quirky little film, and at a certain point, and you will know this point, it takes a complete hard left turn into surrealism. It is a farce. It is an absurd farce, and it has, and on top of all that, is it becomes an absurd farce with surrealist elements. And these, you know, it depends on how a film manages to pull that off. It either works or it doesn't. Mm And I would. Venture to say, in my experience, nine times out of ten, it does not work. Uh, not that you can't make surrealist films, but you can't make a film that go, that turns surreal halfway through it and not have it feel jarring. And that was the great thing about how the film is made, is that when it takes this turn, I didn't bat an eye. The film right. mm-hmm. doesn't bat an eye. Mm-hmm. It's just suddenly this totally fucking bizarre thing is going on, and it makes complete and total sense for the world that these characters live in and for the characters themselves right. to act this way. You don't way. even question what's no, going on. No, they don't yeah. question it. No one reacts all that strongly to what would be considered a supernatural event. And um, everybody goes with it because that's the world they live in. This is the absurd, surreal world that they live in. And it, as weird as this moment gets, and it carries through all the way to the end of the film, they don't drop this weird thing. Um, it never got on my nerves. It never felt untrue. Um, so there are parts, there are reasons to watch it, not least of which is her. Right. And the secondary point is that 
it, I may have some problems with the film as a whole, but it is remarkably well constructed and directed. I think so. It's just that there is an entire ensemble of characters that I just really didn't find interesting or uh, love. And that included Lucas Hedges, um, who is a very good actor, but he's got to stop playing these disaffected, rich, white boy right. roles. They, I realize I agree. that's what he is. He He actually himself grew up rather wealthy, and it's very hard to break away from a certain type of role but right. if timothy chalamet can do it you can do it and too he's buddy talent. i mean he's i not, think he's very talented, he's talented. yeah um, he's, it, he's got that quiet quality of actors that he doesn't have to say anything and you're just leaning in to look at he's him. talented and then and he can do more um but yeah. you know the usual uh he's he, he just did a film with meryl right. streep where so mm-hmm. he's always with these older ladies playing these disaffected young rich guys and it's you know okay enough of that uh, anyway, I don't have anything more to say about no, Print Tech I, that I know you I wanted would, to talk about it. No, but I would definitely um, watch it. I will definitely see it if you can. Um, and if you like her, um, I think she's phenomenal. I mean, she's the reason, number one reason to see the movie. I agree. She is amazing in it. It's just, it's sort of like when Glenn Close did that movie, The Wife. Yes. The performance was astonishing. The movie wasn't really all that great. But she was incredible yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, kind okay. of the same here. Moving on, mm-hmm. what were we going to talk about? Oh, I will set the stage for this. This is funny. Our lives are so weird, and this is one of those... I debated whether to tell the background of this, because it makes us sound so weird if you are not if you don't do what we do for a living. But I read something last week, and I turned to Lorenzo, and I was like, <coughs> excuse me, I heard that coming, and I was trying so, so hard to stop it. Uh, so, excuse me. Um... And yes, that's where you're supposed to say, bless you, honey. Bless Bless you. Oh, thank you. Okay. Um, So I read this thing and I turned to Lorenzo and I said, oh my God, this pisses me off. I feel like another sneeze is coming. And if it does, I apologize. Um, And we wound up having this very heated discussion. Not, we were both in total agreement. We were just all caught up on this same idea. And I stopped him halfway through it. And I said, we need to stop talking right now. We need to, this is going to make a great podcast. So it's one of those weird things where we're just living our lives day to day. And when we stop and go, oh, this will make content. Um, But it is, it is, you know, the kind of thing we would talk about. Here's what set it off. Uh, Two things. Um... There was a report, uh, I can't even remember, I think it was the New York Times, but it rocketed around film Twitter and a bunch of industry, like the Hollywood Reporter and, and Variety, I think, picked it up as well. A news report that uh, this year, the percentage of people who have actually seen any mm-hmm. of the films nominated for the Oscars is just dismal, like the lowest it's been in years. Right. People just aren't haven't seen these movies. And there was all this gnashing of teeth and moaning, because why, why, why? These films are available all on streaming services, or you can, pay, you know, some of them are, uh, yeah, some of them are on Netflix, some of them are on Hulu, right. some of them are on, um, I don't know, wherever they are, uh, Apple TV, whatever. Um, no, they're not on Apple TV. They don't do movies. Prime Video. That's what this, right. And they're available, and people aren't actually watching them, even though they're stuck at home and have been home all year looking for entertainment options. And there was all this gnashing of teeth as to why that was the case. Then at the same time, um, roughly the same time, a story came out that Emerald Fennell, who is the director and writer of pro- the film Promising Young Women, which is up for many awards, uh, just got snatched up by Warner Brothers, the DC Comics division of it, to do mm-hmm. an adaptation of their sort of B-list superhero character, Zatanna, who was 
like a magic. I mean, I have a feeling that I've always loved Zatanna, and I'm pretty sure that that character has been in the pipeline for many years now, but I kind of think the success of WandaVision has made DC put their own mm, witch character forward. She's, she's the sorceress in the DCU. And Emerald was tapped to, uh, I believe, write and direct the movie. I loved it. I mean, I like I said, I love that character. I really like Promising Young Women, and I actually think Emerald Fennell is probably great. a yeah. good match for that character because she's kind of um, uh, femininity as a weapon, you know, sexual p- female power as a weapon is sort of inherent in the character, and it's uh, unlike, for instance, say, Wonder Woman. Um, and she's good with that mm-hmm. kind of material because that's right. basically what Promising Young Women was. She took a lot of iconography of femininity and girliness right. and, and pink and hair ribbons and stuff like that and turned it into this dark psychological whatever. So I'm like, all right, that's a cool match for that character. Immediate response to that, and this was what set me off from a lot of critics and stuff was, oh my God, this is so awful. Here's this rising, you know, talent in filmmaking and she makes one good film and immediately she gets snatched up to do a superhero right. film. And this is the terrible state of American filmmaking. Blah, 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 blah. Oh my God. And um, my, look, I know I talk about comic book movies a lot and I I love them, uh, but I also know that... Uh, 95% of them, I agree with Martin Scorsese, they do not actually qualify as cinema. They are very entertaining and enjoyable theme park rides. Most of them. Very well put together. I love them. I have emotional responses to them. But they are not cinematic. They do not right. They do not um, speak the language of cinema. They speak the language of comic books, um, which I enjoy and I love, but I, I get it. I'm not here to suggest that you shouldn't bemoan how much those types of films uh, dominate uh, American filmmaking. On the other hand, I think it's very short-sighted and incredibly snobby um, because my first thought was, oh, good for her. She's going to cash in. She's Mm going to get money for this film. And if it does well, she can write Right, that, ticket that's after the whole that. Point. Yeah, that getting is it. Yeah. the point. And yeah. I'm sure she sees it that uh-huh. way. But it annoyed the hell out of me that the first response was, oh my God, this is horrible. Anyway, it led into a whole thing about our own feelings about high culture and lo- so-called high culture and low culture. Right. I want to throw to you, Lorenzo is a classically trained violinist. He played in an orchestra when he was younger. And you have all, and this is what, when I, because you started bringing this up last week, and I was like, oh, we need to stop. Because you've always had this, I, this, this, it annoyed you. Right. The way we look at classical music in this country and the way it is elevated right. above. It was so all, talk about high that. high and low uh, culture thing, it was always part of my life. I mean, I, I, I play the violin and the harpsichord. Um because I'm very much into Baroque music. That's why I played the harpsichord. Anyway. And very homosexual. And ve- <laughs> I mean the harpsichord. <laughs> Come on. And very homosexual. So, and Did I was you gonna, wear a hoop skirt oh when my you God. played it? So that, that's what I was going to bring. That's why I brought up the homosexual thing. Because I discovered myself as a homosexual. Started going to disco texts and everywhere. Um and of course, I was listening to dance music and all kinds of stuff. So I always had that combo in my life of, of classical music. I used to play the violin all day training. And then, you know, meet my friends and of my age. And so and most of them didn't couldn't care less about classical music. It was always about other types of music. So I'm, I, I feel fortunate that I had these combination of, you know, 
high and low uh, type of music. We're talking about music here. Right. But um, I've always noticed this 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 wall sometimes that it's you know, so expensive to see to listen to live classical music yes, or orchestral right, or right. chamber music. It is. You've always pointed this out to me. The the venues that we put it in are not accessible to people. Right. They're not popular to people. Right. And the pricing, you know, range, the price points for these events are out of the reach of most people. And, and it's treated like, it's sort of like Shakespeare, right. where it's treated like, here's a thing that you need to sit through and learn, and it makes you a more right. cultured it's not, person. It's never presented yeah. as, here is something beautiful and fun and enriching right. with a right. history that goes back exactly. forever. Um, so it just, this was a sort of heated conversation we had. I was looking at it from the film critic side of things, and you were looking at the musical world right. side of things, but we both are in agreement that, and are, do you agree this is a particularly American approach to culture? Um, I don't know. I don't I guess know. it's true. Europe has the same no, I, idea I, about classical. Although I think classical music is far more accessible in Europe than it is in America. Um, yes, and yes, to a certain extent, yes, but, but you still have... And I have, think they're more open to... Uh, say experimental or independent cinema than Amer- the American audience, right? Are. But it's it, it's still. I mean, if you compare downloading a song <laughs> uh, on your phone as opposed to go to a a, a concert, right. you know, a classical music uh, concert, it it's very expensive. Right. Uh, it's still expensive, uh, <coughs> and it's interesting to see how this conversation now about because the generations who can that can afford that type of music, they're all dying. <laughs> right. So. Who's going to support classical music now? Uh, because the young generation hasn't been trained or exposed to it. Um, so it, 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 it's, it's, or they've been taught to look at it as something that sits high above. Right, them. exactly. It's, it's not really part of them uh, unless they play an instrument. Unless right. you're talking about someone young who plays an instrument. But it's not the type of entertainment that you see a lot of young people talking about. Yeah. Uh, the same way they talk about, you know, Ariana Grande. Right. <laughs> Returning this to pop culture and the world of film, which is my area that I know, um, this tied in to me, this tied into the distress over the fact that people aren't watching, you know, Minari or um, no- Nomadland or all the, sh- you know, movies that are available. You know, the important, mm-hmm. dramatic, in some cases, you know, depressing or heavy, you know, sort of films that attract Oscar attention. And yes, it does kind of suck that these films are uh, available, far more available to the average viewer than they would normally be in an Oscar year, because these these types of films would be playing in smaller theaters. But um, I don't know. I think the critical world loses sight of some things when they start getting on the their high horse about this sort of mm-hmm. thing, because my first response was, you know... This is not the year to criticize people for not watching Nomadland. People are home, and they're living through the most stressful, most anxiety-inducing event of their lives, and it's been going on for a year. And if you look at, so you know, entertainment-based social media or even just entertainment-based media, um, the focus this year has been so much on comforting revisits. Yes. Revisiting old shows that are streaming, revisiting old movies that are streaming, yes. or embracing the kind of entertainment that is soothing, which is why, for instance, WandaVision exploded in the way that it did. Because at least for the first three or four episodes, it was this really pleasant, unusual diversion right. that left you hanging every week. 
Um, I think the, people I, are still watching. It's yes. not that they can't watch challenging things or and won't watch challenging things, but I really don't think this is the time to be bemoaning the fact that, um, you know, maybe people aren't watching more serious or heavy or artistically uh, elevated things at the moment because it's too much for them. Um, I'm not normally someone who argues in favor of the dumbing down of culture, and I really want people to seek out entertainment that challenges them, that isn't just cookie cutter, that isn't mindless or comforting. Um, but I simply can't blame anyone for for not doing that right now. I really right not this year, people. No, I I can only speak for myself. When, when the when the whole pandemic exploded back in March last year, I remember the fr- thinking, "Oh my God, thank God I have TCM," right? Because I I you know I love TCM, and I was like, "All right, they're not going to run out of movies. No, they're going to keep showing the same things that they show. So at least I'll be entertained." Uh, but I can only met. I mean. You have to understand it was it was a period of time when when things were like people were looking at things like all right what are we going to watch now there's right. nothing I mean right. they can't film anything they can't create anything new um, again what are we it's like, do I don't think like for instance a show like Bridgerton right I I don't know that it might have it might not have been quite the phenomenon it was exactly. except it it dropped it's this candy colored sex fantasy set in Regency England right. Um, the time was right for that kind of just many, lightness, right? You know? Many people wrote ab- about that when they were talking about uh, Emily in Paris, for example. Like people, Again, people were th- saying they wouldn't pay that much attention to Emily in Paris <laughs> if we but we're all stuck inside. Right, and right. it was easy to hate on because it was so light and fluffy and dumb. And I think people wanted that this year way more than they wanted to watch Francis right. McDormand, you know, pooping in a bucket in a van. <laughs> um, Believe me, Nomadland is amazing, an amazing, amazing film, and I hope everyone watches it, uh, and, cl- and all the other films on, but I get, like Promising Young Women. Amazing. I think it's an amazing film, but I also think, uh, especially for women, you know, approach with caution, because it gets, right, right. It gets rough there, and right. it's dark at the end of it. Um, and maybe this isn't the year you want to watch something like right. that. Uh, maybe, you know, as an Asian American, maybe you don't want to watch Minari right now. Maybe right. that is stirring up too much anxiety right. in your life about anti, you know, Asian sentiment in America. I don't think anybody, I don't think any critic should be uh, making an issue of that. I think as a critic, you should be examining the reasons for that. And and let and instead of attacking people, mm-hmm. looking at the whole picture. Right. I will say, and I don't, I hope this doesn't sound really snotty, but um, I follow a lot of film and television critics because, like I've said this before, we, I count myself, right. ourselves among them, but on a, obviously a much smaller level. But, you know, I follow a lot of them. I, I engage with a lot of them. And when I talk about this kind of, you know, oh, the masses and, oh, Marvel movies and, oh, you know, they're snatching up all the talented. I have to be honest and say that the Critics that are saying that are not the top-level A-list critics who work at, you know, high-level magazines and industry. I'm not naming names, but the the top-of-the-top critics, they don't have attitudes like that because Mm -hmm. you don't get to the top of your your, um, field in, in film criticism without having a little bit of flexibility and yeah, you leeway. Can't be, you can't be that selective. You can't that. be that rigid about it. No. Otherwise, you just become a specialist sort right, of film right. critic who only does, you know, critiques art house films. Um, to be a populist film critic in, say, the Roger Ebert mode, and Roger Ebert is someone that I think 
is a perfect example of this. Um, he's still a household name 10 years after his mm-hmm. death because he was a populist critic. He could talk about... Um, I would have loved to have heard what he would have thought about the explosion of Marvel movies in this day and age. But he could talk about films on their own terms and take them on their own terms. And he didn't necessarily, I mean, he didn't love the dumbing down of American cinema. He doesn't, he didn't uh, embrace, you know, the world of blockbuster films wholeheartedly. He could see how that was in its own way damaging to the culture because it sucks up so much of the, you know, oxygen in the room. But at the same time, he was able to 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 a, talk about any of these films right. and 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 you know enjoy them on their in, including super trashy films. He he sometimes loved super trashy films, and I just feel like um, criticism as a whole. I have always approached our the way we critique television shows and the way we critique films. You have to understand, or I think you have to accept that it exists in a populist sort of arena, like pop culture mass culture is culture that succeeds by drawing the largest audience possible that's the only reason the money gets put into those projects is because the money can be you know made back and if you don't understand or accept that that's a reality then yeah you're just going to sound bitter and you're going to like you know the the culture has this understanding of critics that uh critics don't often help um, fight this image. They they actually play into it. This idea right. of them being very snotty, mm-hmm. looking down on on viewers and audience members, and only liking the kinds of films that nobody wants to see. Right. I think I think that's something I learn with time is how and when to talk about certain things. Like in my yes. case, classical music. Right. How to talk about it if it comes up in a conversation or someone asks. Or, you have a really funny story about that. Oh yeah, yeah. I was young and. <laughs> Such a bitch, bitch, little bitch, snotty little bitch, bitch with my violin, and <laughs> and um, I was I was being introduced to another kid my age, and um, by my aunt, wonderful aunt, love her, um, also plays the violin. So, and I'm having this conversation, and I would just want to, you know, I don't know, brag, be, brag, and be the asshole that I was, and I just talk about classical music. I just started talking about classical music and naming all these com- uh, composers and everything. <laughs> and the kid just looked at me like, what the hell is he talking about? And then my aunt just turned and looked at me and said, not the time, honey. <laughs> not the time. <laughs> Wise woman. Wise woman. And, and it's true. It's just, you, you just have to find, if you have certain passions, that's my take, my experience. Uh, and they're not as popular as, I don't know, anything else. You just have to find the time and the way to talk about them if you want to introduce them to people who exactly. are not exposed to them. A prime That's example right. of yeah. this in our careers is Mad Style, right. which allowed me to use years of um, f- critical film analysis skills. And, you know, it's applying literary analysis to in this case, the costume design, so that you would look at the costume design the same way you would read a book and and dissect the book. And this was the stuff I went to college for. This was the stuff I spent all my time doing. But um, for years, we had to sort of explain to people, no, right. no, this is because a lot of people thought it was about you know uncracking the code and finding secrets and but and no, 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 that's not what this is. This is literary analysis. This is literary crit. This is how you you dive into a piece right. and you pull it apart right. and you find meaning in it. Um, and to me, that was a perfect way to take sort of high-level critical skills that are, you know, taught in colleges and applying it to something that was right. popular right. and um, 
people could easily grasp because if you're talking about the clothes on Mad, who doesn't want to look at the clothes on Mad Men? You know what I mean? They were amazing to look at. So that's an example of how you of of how we manage. And it was an early learning lesson for for me about how what our what we were going to do in our careers, how we were going to fill a certain spot in the right. in in the you know critical culture, I guess, that allowed us to be high and low at the same time, right, that right. we can talk about red carpet stuff in, in a really bitchy sort of, right, right. but we can also turn around and say, you know, here's the semiotic meaning behind blah, blah, right. blah. And, and back to what I said, uh, <laughs> it goes both ways, because I, I, I do have the experience of seeing a lot of people uh, back back to classical music, uh, criticize people for not it being interested in classical music, but these people don't make any effort to be interested in pop music <laughs> the same way. So right, it right, goes, right. you know, it goes both ways. I think you can expand, you can respect other people, other people's um, interest and, 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 you know, preferences. Uh, it's just, that's something I had to learn. I'm, I'm talking about classical music because that's my experience, um, that you just have to learn how to approach the subject uh, and how to talk about it in a way that, you don't pull people away from me, you know, like, you know, you don't push people away, you know, uh, quite the opposite. You know, you, you, people get interested because you have a, a better way of, of introducing the, a topic that they're not familiar with. Agreed. Uh, so those are our thoughts on high and low culture. Yeah. Yes, that's it. Um, so once again, kittens, thank you for listening to us. We'd like, love to hear you all weigh in on some of this. So let us know what you think about all the various things. Let us know. If, are you watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Is it is it worth it to you? Right. Um, and how do you feel about the Oscars? And what yes. else do we talk about? Uh, um, the Serpent. Um, yes, that's you, dropping today. So yeah. people are going to watch it over the weekend. Right. So and, let's hear and, what you all think. And French Exit. Don't forget. And French, French Exit. I would love to know uh, if any of our listeners have... Um, have watched it yet and what they think of the, all the things that we said. So there's your pot, your, your pod pory, <laughs> pod pory of topics, the smorgasbord of topics for you to discuss. And we thank you once again for listening. We will be back next week with whatever crosses our eyes or crosses our desks. In the meantime, stay safe. Love you. Mean it. Bye-bye. Bye.